welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thanks for joining us for our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. In it, Paul gets very personal about his own shortcomings, and he comforts the believers in Corinth. But he also teaches us that by embracing our own weakness, we are able to experience God's strength. Grab your Bibles, and let's jump in. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and stand with me when you get there just for the reading of God's word this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. You may be seated. If you're just joining with us or you haven't been around um, the church for a length of time, we are studying through, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the book or the letter of 2 Corinthians. And this was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And just to catch up to speed briefly, Paul had planted this church. It's a young church. It's in a growing new city. Paul planted the church, stayed with them for, for a while, and then ended up leaving the Lord led him on to go to go minister in other parts of the region. But as soon as Paul left, things in the church got really, really messy. People were starting to fight. There was just inward tension. Uh, there was just a division in the church. People were sleeping around. Um, they were getting drunk on the, the wine that was supposed to be used for communion. So you talk about a, a, a church that has a lot of problems. Like this was that. There, it was very messy. And so Paul writes to them a very corrective, a very strongly written letter, and that uh, is what we call 1 Corinthians. And in it, he pleads with them, hey, would you repent of your sin? Would you turn back to Jesus? But unfortunately, we know through going through 1 Corinthians last year is that the church didn't respond well to that letter. Things didn't go as planned as, as Paul had in mind. And, and so Paul then goes, because he, he likens himself to a spiritual father to them. And so he doesn't just write them off. No, he says he went to them and he called his visit a painful visit painful visit. If you can just imagine, like this, the, these spiritual children of yours are just caught up in all kinds of sin and just, you know, just a hard, when you have to have hard conversations, they're not easy, they're painful. And you're just hoping. And, and that too did, what didn't go well. And so then he writes another letter to them, just this persistent like love. And he calls this letter a letter of tears. And we don't have access to this letter, um, but it's, it's alluded to it here in 2 Corinthians. But so after the painful visit, after the letter of tears, it seems like um, that most of the church repents. They acknowledge that they had sinned. They've been wrong. And so Paul writes them yet another letter. And that is 2 Corinthians. 
And 2 Corinthians, we know, is divided into three sections. You have chapters 1 through 7. Paul is, because there's been repentance, there's, he's seeking to be reconciled to the church, right? He's, he's been encouraging them. He's seeking to, one, defend his ministry still, but also to seek reconciliation with the church. And then in chapters 8 and 9 are about giving, if you remember. Um, Paul just had it on his heart, and he shared the need for the struggling church in Jerusalem, that there was a financial need. And so he was exhorting the Corinthians, hey, you guys said you would come through on this need. You said that you would, you would commit and, and give. I want to encourage you to follow through and to be faithful in your giving. And then now chapters 10 through 13 is about correction. Because it seems as though some did repent, it, it appears that there's a rebellious minority that has been influenced, in, that are in the church, been influenced by a group of outsiders. And Paul's going to call them super apostles, Right? And we're going to see that Paul is going to continue to reassert his spiritual authority in the church of Corinth. And so as we look at this, the last few chapters of this letter, Paul, again, is going to spend some time correcting this church and challenging them in the way that they're living. But one thing I, I don't want us to, to forget is that Corinth was a very influential city. It was a new city. It was a young city. It was an up-and-coming city in ancient Greece. But because of the location, um, many people lived there. Many people traveled through there and spent time there. Uh, Corinth was known for theater. It was known for sporting competitions. So this is a place kind of where you would go to make a name for yourself. This is like if you're a country artist, you're going to Nashville, right? If you're an actor, you're going to Hollywood. That's kind of the place. If you wanted to make a name for yourself, you went to Corinth. And because of that, the values of the city of Corinth were that of strength, of victory, of reputation, of winning and winning and winning and looking good. I call it external impressiveness. That's what Corinth was about, external impressiveness, success. And these kind of values didn't stay outside the walls of the church, but they started infiltrating the church. And Paul's pleading with them here to repent, to turn. So look with me at verse one. He says, now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. Now, you need to understand what Paul says at the end of verse 1. He says, I am, uh, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. He's actually quoting the Corinthians about what they've said about him. Okay? So they say, oh, Paul, oh, he's humble with us when he's you know, face-to-face when he's with us. But, oh, when he's not here, he writes his letters and they're harsh and they're harder. They're more authoritative and he's bold. And if you skip down in your Bible in verse 10, he actually says this, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. In other words, they're accusing Paul of being like a guy who is very bold behind a keyboard. (laughs) but not as bold in in person. You guys know people like this? Oh man, it's so easy to say things on Facebook. (laughs) It's so easy to write a blog. You would never say that to my face though, would you? You know, 
That's what they're, they're accusing Paul of. They're saying, in person, dude, you are weak, you're, you're, you're timid, you're unimpressive, you're not a good orator, you have no charisma, you, you lack command and authority, you're boring to listen to. But, when, but so when they say that he's meek face to face, I want you to know this, that's not a compliment. They're dissing Paul. They're speaking kind of, you know, smack talk, if you will, trash talk. Oh, he's just meek face to face. And we have to understand that in in the Corinthian culture, meekness and gentleness were not qualities that were valued. They were nothing to be sought after. Meekness and gentleness were all a hindrance to what they wanted to achieve in their life. So in essence, like if you're going to Hollywood to, to be an actor, you're not just going to kind of go, you know, casual and just say, hey, if I can have an audition, you know, like I'd, I'd be willing. I think I'd be great for the part. If not, no big deal. Like that's not what you're going to do to make it in Hollywood. If you're going to go to Nashville and be a country singer, like you're not going to be like, I, I know four chords on a guitar, even though that's all you need in country music. But like, you know, like you're going to put your best foot forward, right? And so... <laughs> So in, in the Corinthian culture, again, meekness and gentleness, nothing to, nothing to that's not a compliment. They wanted to be proud, showy, and just like, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at all of my accomplishments. And the reality is, church, our culture is very much the same, isn't it? Look at me. Look at all I've done. Look at who I am. Meekness and gentleness in our culture just as it was in Corinth, are seen as foolishness and weakness as well. But I want you to notice something very, very important, and it's in verse 1. He says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness, there's two words here that are very key, of Christ. Paul's not just talking about a generic meekness. He's not just talking about a generic gentleness, but he's talking specifically about the meekness and gentleness of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said this in in Matthew 11. I've been soaking in this passage in the last couple months. Jesus said this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, this is a great invitation. He says, come to me, and what are you going to find? He says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You know, that word that Jesus uses for gentle is the same Greek word that Paul uses for meekness in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. And this word meekness or gentleness doesn't mean weakness. It, imply, it doesn't imply being wimpy. It doesn't mean not strong. I've heard it said, meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. Have you heard it that way? Meekness is power under control. And one of the best ways I grew up listening to my dad talk about meekness, he would always use it as an ex- the example of a horse in like the first century. That this word meekness means like a bridled strength. You know, horses, if you were, I didn't spend my time on many ranches or with horses, but they're, they're really strong, right? They're really strong. A wild horse could even be dangerous, right? But when a horse is broken, in other words, when it submits to the will of a master, then it's meek. It's no less strong. It's still really strong, but it has a broken strength, a bridled strength. And that's what meekness is. And Jesus says it in his own words, I am meek. 
I am meek, Jesus. You see, meekness is perceived by our world as weakness, but God sees it as strength. But not only does Jesus say that he's gentle or he's meek, but he also says that he's lowly. You know that word lowly means humble? It means that Jesus associates with the downcast, not just the elites. That he's, in other words, he's accessible. You, you think about the more important we think someone is, the less accessible they are, right? You think about the president of the United States, you think about the king of England, um, you're just like, man, they're so important, I'll never have access to them. But not so with Jesus. Jesus says, I'm lowly, I'm approachable, anyone can come before me. This is the great invitation, is to come to me. And not only does he say that he's gentle and lowly, but he says that he's gentle and lowly, two words, in heart. In heart. Did you know that this is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus describes his own heart to, to us? And how does he describe it? I'm gentle and lowly. I don't know what your view of Jesus is this morning, but I would take it from his own words of who he is. That he is gentle and lowly in heart. I've been reading a book very slowly. I'm a slow book reader uh, in the course of this year, and the book is called Gentle and Lowly. And, it, and it's taking this Matthew 11 passage and really breaking it down, like almost word by word. And Dane Ortland, who wrote this, this book, said this. He says, the, the cumulative testimony of the four gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Listen, Jesus is not repelled by our struggle and our sin. I want you to know that. I am so much in my life so anti-Jesus so often. My kids mess up, my wife messes up, and I'm just like judgmental angry, frustrated. I need a break. Walk away. But I want you to know, and I'm reminding myself this morning, Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not repelled by our struggle and by our sin, but he is actually drawn closer to us. He is drawn to the broken and the hurting. He is drawn to those who are struggling. Some of you, you're like, that's me this morning. Listen, he's drawn to you. His invitation to you is even stronger right now. Come to me, I'm here. And so Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. He's meek. And not only is this true about him, but it should also be true of anyone who's in Christ. And let me ask us this morning, how do we view being meek and gentle? How do we view it? Because if I'm honest before you today, I so often can be like the Corinthians. I find my value and my worth in, not, in, in being not weak, right? And being strong and, and being confident by holding it all together. That's where I find value and worth. But how do, how do you view being meek and gentle? And this is, this is Paul's testimony of his own life. He says, I am coming to you in the same meekness and gentleness as Jesus did. 
Look at verse 2. He says, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. You see, even though Paul was their founding pastor, he planted the church, he pastored the church, he was their spiritual father. Paul knew, because he wrote it in almost every letter, that he was an apostle by the will of God. Like this was God's calling on his life, that with this calling came authority. But he never wanted to abuse that authority. He was willing to use it, but he didn't want to abuse it. And so Paul didn't want to come to them and say, hey, listen up, you need to straighten up. Hey, I'm the boss around here. You guys need to just, you guys need to get with it. You, here's, the, here's the commandments. You guys got to, no, no, that, that's, that wasn't his heart. Paul's leadership style wasn't with a heavy hand coming down on them, but he always sought to build them up in encouragement. And even if you think about this whole letter of 2 Corinthians, it's, it's one of just encouragement. He's trying to encourage this reconciliation. He wasn't trying to condemn them, but to encourage them on in grace. Why? So he wouldn't have to come and boldly assert his authority. He was willing to come, but he didn't want to have to come. He would rather build them up in love and grace. Look at verse 3. He says, for though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. And here Paul is talking about war and, 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 and about how we fight in this war. And when he talks about warring according to the flesh, he's essentially saying that the way of the world and the way that the world fights is fleshly. It's anti-Jesus, right? And think about it. How does our world fight, Right? How do they fight today? We watch this all over, right? Through force, through manipulation. They, 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 we shame people in our culture. We say hateful things. We smear people's reputations. And all of those are just like what we watch in a presidential debate, right? Like that's it. That's, that's the honest truth. This is what we watch. This is how our culture, culture fights. And let me just remind you and with bad news, like we're coming up in like one year to like another election season, and some of you are like, that's bad news? This is good news. Um, but what I, what I, bring, I bring that up is we're going to see very clearly how our world and how, how our culture fights. And let me remind you, a lot of what we're going to see is people waging war according to the flesh, according to the world. And when Paul's talking about the flesh, he's talking about our sinful nature within us, our sinful nature that we know is always a warring against the Spirit of God within us. And so, and so he says, though we walk in the flesh, he says, this is the reality. We're in a material world, right? We're, we're filled and we're surrounded by, by, by worldly thinking, by human understanding, Paul's saying, but that we don't have to be limited to that. He says, we don't have to fight in the flesh, he says, there's another way. And as followers of Jesus' church, this is our calling in the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. We are not to war or battle or handle things according to the flesh, according to human standards. Why? Because if we're in Christ, as we learned in chapter 5, we've been born again right? We're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And that includes every single part of us should be influenced by that. And so we don't war according to the flesh, but with the spiritual power. Look at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. 
So Paul's saying we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We do things differently. We do fight, yes, but we don't fight like the world fights. He's, we've been given, he says, weapons of divine power, right? Divinely power, weapons that are divinely power for the destruction of fortresses. And we learn more of what he writes about spiritual weapons in Ephesians 6 when he said this. He said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then he goes on and we know that he lists the armor of God. You have the belts of truth, you have the, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, shoes that make us ready to share the gospel, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And in all of it, he says, we pray. We pray. That's how we do battle, right? We do battle differently. We do battle on our knees before the Lord. One of my favorite worship leaders is Phil Wickham. And he wrote a song, many of you probably know it, it's called Battle Belongs. And one of the words uh, to it, one of the lines is, when I fight, I fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. That's where the spiritual battle takes place. And listen, this is so powerful. It's not that there isn't any power to it, but it's, we have to recognize that we're looking for God's power, not our power. We're looking for God's power. I think of Paul's words in Romans 1. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, I don't know all of your stories, but when potentially you, when you became a Christian, you might have been told or thought that becoming a Christian meant that it was going to make your life easier. We chuckle because some of us know. But maybe you thought that, oh, I'll, I'll give my life to Jesus and I'll just do away with all my problems. But what's happened, maybe you've noticed, is life's gotten really hard. And for many of you, maybe following Jesus, this has been your story, maybe it hasn't made things easier for you, but harder for you. Maybe, maybe you've realized persecution or relationships in your family are not like they used to be. There's tension. And so you might think, well, what, what, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? What, what, is, is something broken in me? Like everyone kind of seems to be smiling. Like, um, and, and you think that maybe God is even failing you. But I want you to notice, know this. And this was just a, a reminder for me, even this week of the week of prayer, is that, listen, when you and I became believers in Jesus, when we committed our lives to Jesus, we enlisted into a spiritual battle. We enlisted into a spiritual battle. But I want you to know, because that's a, man, that's, that's a hard thing to hear and a hard thing to believe. And, but I want you to know that God has given us power for the battle. And so when we find ourselves in this battle, I don't want you to forget, church, that we have the spirit of the living God living within us. And because of his presence with us, and in us, we can truly say, as the Bible says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So the Lord has given us power. He's given us weapons, not just so we can barely survive. Sometimes I feel that way. But no, so that we can advance in this battle and take back ground from the enemy. And this isn't easy. This is not easy. 
I don't think it's supposed to be easy, but it's not easy. But while the battle is real, my prayer is that we would never forget that the victory has already been won in Jesus. And in Colossians chapter 2, I want to turn your attention because Paul is writing about how Christ has not only won, but he shows us how he accomplished this victory. So Colossians chapter 2 says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he says, God made alive together with him. How? Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What Paul is saying is that church, we, you and I have a record of debt against us because of our sins. And because of that, the enemy has power over us. And it's the, you know what power it is? It's the power of accusation. It's the power of accusation. Did you know the Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren? That's Revelation chapter 12. He says, now the salvation and the power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. In other words, what the Bible is saying is that the devil himself, Satan himself, is like a wicked, corrupt, manipulative, prosecuting attorney taking us, just accusing us night and day before the judge, who is the Lord. And the devil looks at you, and then he looks to the judge. He looks at me, and he looks at the judge, and he says, really? Look at Ryan. Really? He's a joke. He's a failure. Some of you laugh because you know that. Look at all of his imperfections. You talk about fault-finding, the devil's the master of fault-finding. He's there to expose every fault that every single one of us has. And let me just be honest with you. In my life, there's plenty to find. There's plenty for him to accuse me of. He looks at the judge and he says, he's guilty. He deserves judgment. He deserves punishment. And he looks at me and he looks at you and he says those things to the Lord. But the good news and what Paul is saying in Colossians is what Jesus does is he comes in and he takes that record and he, he, he acknowledges it for what it is, but he nails it to the cross. And he steps in and he says, I'm paying for it, right? I'm paying for that debt. I'm bearing that penalty. And in his place, he gives us his righteousness, not based on our works, not based on how good we can be, but based solely on the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so when he does that, when Jesus steps in on our behalf that judgment day, he exposes the power of the enemy. And the enemy's power was accusation. But, not, but because of what Jesus has done on the cross, the enemy has nothing left over us. Because when, you know what, when you wake up and the enemy meets you with that, with that truth, not a lie, it's a truth of man, Ryan, 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 you're a failure. You know what you can say? Yes, but thanks be to God who delivered us 
and is delivering us and gives us the freedom and salvation because of Jesus Christ. So just go with whatever the enemy says. Yeah, I am a loser. Yeah, I am rotten. Yes, I do stumble and fall, but thanks be to God because he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. That's good news. That's good news. You know, I came across a, an old hymn I had never heard. I came across the lyrics of it years ago on a blog. And I still never actually listened to it. And I remember copying and pasting it in my phone. Because I'm like, you know what? This spoke to me in such a profound way. And I saved it in my phone. And I'm like, one day, Lord, I'm going to be able to share this with people, this, this hymn. And I don't know if you've ever heard the hymn. It's called, His Be the Victor's Name. Anyone? First service, someone shouted out, only old people. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't matter. His be the victor's name. Let this minister to you. It says this, what though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. Listen, church, you have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. You are clean. Your sins, though they were scarlet, he has made them white as snow. Your sins that though you thought were attached to you, he has cast them as far as the east is from the west. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But... If we are not guarded, this is Paul's point, if we are not guarded in our minds, the enemy will continue to accuse us day and night and lead us astray where we start believing the accusations of the enemy. And I want you to know that we are in a spiritual battle, and this spiritual battle takes place in our minds and in our thoughts. And Paul assures them that the weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh, they're not earthly, but they're spiritual. And when we fight spiritual battles with spiritual weapons that God has given us, Paul says at the end of verse four, he says, fortresses are destroyed. Your translation might say strongholds are destroyed. Those things that have held you captive in your life, whether it's faulty thinking are being destroyed. And then he goes on in, in verse five and he talks about what these fortresses are. He says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul's saying that we're destroying, he says, speculations, or another word for that is arguments, discussions, thought, pro ways of thinking that, that the world has over us. The world wants to argue against God. The world thinks they know more about God. They, um, and, and Paul just says here, we're destroying these things. And the, this worldly thinking has still been affecting some in the church in Corinth. And Paul is saying, church, anything and everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, against the truth of who he is and what he's done for you, we demolish those things with the, this divine power. Not our fleshly power, but with this divine spiritual power. And he says in verse five, again at the end, he says, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
And this is so important. Paul's exhorting the Corinthians to take control of the way that they think. Why? Because again, this battle takes place in our mind. This is where the war is being fought, church. And what Paul is saying is that every thought that we have, every little thing that comes to our mind must be sifted through the truth of God's word. Through the truth of God's word. Because in Corinth, what Paul's up against is that there's a lot of strange ideas floating around in Corinth. There are. They not only had Greek gods, they had Roman gods. And there was a lot of philosophies and influences that helped shape and mold the people. We would call that worldviews, right? Being shaped by these different philosophies. And Paul's talking about these speculations or these arguments that they need to be aware of. Be aware of it, believer. And he's exhorting them, again, to filter everything through the lens of God's word. And listen, if this was a problem in Corinth, no doubt it would be a problem for us today right? We might not be influenced by Greek philosophy or mythology, but we too live in a world that is flooded with strange ideas and thoughts that are completely opposed to the ways of Jesus. Because the reality is every single day we are capable of being indoctrinated by the ways of this world. Don't be ignorant of it. If your kids are in public school, don't be ignorant of it because they are being taught things like there's no absolute truth, right? Whatever your truth is, like that's fine. Like just go with it. There's no real right and wrong. You can choose your own gender. Just just follow your feelings. And we're constantly, if we're not aware, we're constantly being influenced by what we allow ourselves to watch, to read, to listen to. Companies like Disney, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, you name it, Paramount, they're trying to pump out more and more content that blatantly opposes the ways of Jesus. And this is happening whether we like it or not, but how many of us just want to bury our heads in the sand and pretend it's not even happening or not a big deal? And then we wonder, why are we struggling spiritually? Why are we struggling spiritually? One, because we're not taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Our thought life is running wild because of the podcasts we're listening to or the news that we're watching or the Netflix show that we're binging. We're not taking those thoughts captive. Someone calls it that we walk around with like spiritual schizophrenia, right? You have too much of the world in your life to be at peace with Jesus and you have too much of Jesus in your life to be at peace with the world. My dad used to always say that growing up and instilled that in me. And you walk around like, you just toss to and fro. This is what James meant in James 1. He says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Why? Because he gives all to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable, he says, in all of his ways. And so what James is saying is, is church, when you get that thought, when, you, when, you're, when you're navigating a new show to watch on Netflix, and I'm not trying to be like legalistic here, but this is the word of God. And you need to sift that through the truth of God's word. And you would think like, man, I wonder what God thinks about this book to read. I wonder what God thinks about this podcast, whatever, fill in the blank. What James is saying is just ask him, (laughs) ask him. And he says, he'll give you wisdom. He'll let you know. But here's the key, follow through with what he says. (laughs) 
Because if he says, get rid of the book or, or stop watching this show, you need to do it. Don't play around with God's word. Don't tamper with it or else we'll be like the double-minded man unstable in all of our ways. And this is what happens with so many people, myself included often. They get the thought, we might sift it even through the lens of God's word. We know what God has to say about it. But then we start, ah, oh, does it really apply here? <laughs> Does it really apply here? And we kind of pick and choose what we want to adhere to. And we end up surrendering just some of our lives, right? Parts of our, our lives and not surrendering others. And we're still left in bondage. And then we wonder, like, why don't I have joy in my life? Why don't I have, why don't I have peace in my life? Listen, church, there is a battle for our mind. But God's given us the truth in his word that we should be measuring everything in our lives against. Amen? And that's why Paul exhorts us. Corinth... Calvary, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought, Jesus, is this of you? Jesus, is this, is this from your heart? Does this measure up, Jesus, with the truth of your word? Let me ask you before we move on. What are we allowing to enter our minds, in our ears, in our eyes? What are we allowing? Where will it lead us? Will these things... Lead us closer to Jesus or farther away from him. Our culture today and, and many of us in the church have allowed certain influences into our lives, lives that are contradictory to the ways of Jesus. And the scariest part is sometimes we can mask them really well. I, one quick example of this is what I see in a lot of young men. You have two kind of sides of young men today. You have one that uh, they still live in their mom's basement playing video games. That is just a reality. I'm just going to be honest with you. There, there's a lot of young men. Pray for young men to rise up. But here's the other, the other side of the spectrum, is that with the rise of podcasts and figures in our world, um, they're appealing to the other side of the young men to achieve manly perfection through discipline in our own strength, okay? And, and we have, so we have a bunch of young men in our culture who are so hungry, right? They're so hungry for something to live for. And if they think, if, man, if we just listen to enough Joe Rogan's podcast, or if we just listen to enough Jordan Peterson, right? No, this is, this is the thinking in our day, right? I can achieve this level of perfection through discipline in my own strength. And I'm not saying, and please know my heart, I'm not saying those things are, are, are wrong and, and you shouldn't appreciate certain things, but there are things that we are allowing into our minds that are grabbing us too much of us. And the scariest part, again, someone said it this way, and it just clicked, is we have so often the ability to baptize things, things in Jesus lingo, in Christian lingo. And so we take things like that and we just baptize it with Christian lingo and be like, oh yeah, God wants you know, to do this or whatever. And it, and it causes this facade of, of Christianity. Another way of this, and I want to be very careful because I don't want you to mishear my heart in this, but I, I just feel like it needs to be said, is again, we can be distracted and buy into the lies when it comes to anything and it's so subtle. And one way is, is in, in this, and I, I want to just speak it over you, is through Christian nationalism where some in America have begun to believe that we are the chosen people of God. And again, we adopt, we, we, we baptize it in Christian lingo. We're a, we're a nation founded on Judeo-Christian values. And, that, and we're grateful for these things. We're grateful. Second greatest country, I think, in, in, the, in history, next to Israel. 
is America, just with the opportunities that we've been given and the freedoms that we have. I never want to disrespect that, know my heart. But in the church, Christian nationalism has to go. Because when we embrace this, this idea, what we're saying is our culture is over the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of God over our culture. Because the day is coming, church, when we have to eventually bow our knee. And are you going to bow it to the red, white, and blue? Or are you going to bow it to King Jesus? Because they're not going in the same direction. We pray. We vote. We stay involved. We educate ourselves. I'm not dismissing those things. But at the end of the day, we live for the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this world. But it can be so subtle, the lies that we can believe. It can be so subtle. I can believe lies, man, even good things, good things. Oh, Ryan, you're so amazing. Oh, Ryan, you are a great communicator. And I, and I start believing those lies, even the good things in our, that come to our lives, would we take those thoughts captive unto the obedience of Christ? Listen, I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with me today. Would we be a people that are grounded to the word of God? grounded to the word of God, that we would allow the, the, the word of God to be the thing that fills our hearts and our minds on a daily basis. Not Fox News, not CNN, not MSNBC, not Facebook, not TikTok, not Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it. Like n- none of it. Let the word of God fill your heart. And would you experience the peace of God then? The peace of God from the presence of God. Look at verse 6. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Paul's saying to the church of Corinth, church, get on with it. Get on with it. Are you going to judge and think like and filter like spiritual people or worldly people? If we need to exercise our authority when we come to you, I know you're talking behind our backs. We will, but we don't want to, right? You need to make up your mind. That's what he's challenging them. Choose this day, as Joshua would, would tell the leaders, of Israel. Choose this day who you're going to serve. Would you just pick and choose right now? The question is that he's asking is, what mind will you have? Because there is a spiritual battle for our mind, and who's winning it, Corinth? Is it the mind of, of Christ, or is it the mind of this world? Make up your mind. Choose this day who you will serve. Guard your minds. <clears throat> Romans 8, <clears throat> verse 5 says, for those who are according to the flesh... They set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Let us be a people who guard our minds. Guard our eyes. Guard our ears. Because we have a very real enemy. And he knows where we're weak. And he knows how he's going to get, get you and he get me. He's got a strategy. The Bible calls our enemy the, uh, a roaring lion that he prowls around, seeking whom he may devour. And either we will share the mind of Christ or the mind of the world. I am reminded, just in closing, as Jessica, worship team comes up, of Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul would write, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence 
And if anything worthy of praise, he says, dwell on these things. These things. Meditate on these things. There's so many things that are vying for us to dwell on. Paul would remind us, church, whatever's noble, whatever's true, whatever's right and pure, dwell on those Thanks for listening. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For service times, location, or even just to learn more about the ministry of Calvary Southeast, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Join us next week as we continue in our study together.